Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hello, I'm Matthew Tufaxis, and I am speaking. Hi, welcome to our humble podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. <laughs> So, Ati, we understand you are an architect um, and you are a woman in a somewhat male-dominated field. Actually, you know, I'll say I'm not very familiar with the numbers about sort of how architecture, you know, sort of plays out between men, women, and not, I don't know if we can collect numbers on non-binary people, but some of your work focuses on design for people who are neurodiverse. Yes. So I'm excited to talk to you about all of those things. Very excited too. Excited to be here. Architecture is an interesting field as far as being a woman in architecture. I'll start off just because you kind of led me there. Um, the numbers, it's very interesting. Um, and I'll kind of speak to my experience too, because I do think it's unique and it's something that, you know, we in my company like to celebrate. For practicing professional architects, you know, it is still a very male dominated field. Um, I believe the last round of numbers or surveys were something like upper 30s, low 40s, female to male. Interestingly enough, when you go to academia, you know, the numbers are, have recently, I would say over the last decade or so, evened out kind of, and have been trending, you know, evil, evil levels between women and males. So it's interesting to kind of see that progression and that attrition, right? And this begs obviously a bigger discussion in our field that we've been working on as an industry in architecture is you know, what's happening to these women after they graduate from architecture? What fields are they going to? Why are they not staying in fields? You know, it, it leads to discussions on, you know, mother maternity leave, how you come back, skill sets that are ever evolving and maintaining that. So it's actually very interesting. The good news is that it is improving overall. Personally, the company that I work for, and I have been at this company um, since I was interning actually in school, so about 15 years now, has always almost been an even 50-50 split. I've been blessed enough to have amazing female mentors and women mentors where I work. And it's really been kind of a unique thing in our company when we talk to other architecture firms that, you know, it's not very common to have kind of an even 50-50 split. So that's been very exciting for us. And I'm, you know, blessed to work in an environment like that. That's really cool. Do you get the sense that at your firm, it's intentional that there's attention being paid to trying to keep the numbers, you know, the ratios relatively even overall, or is it, is it something like, oh, we kind of lucked into this? I think it probably started like that, you know, just again, finding 
quality candidates and, and teammates that, you know, for our culture work well as a whole. But I do think that as the years have progressed, I think there's been a greater appreciation of kind of that even blend because of, you know, various soft skills that women tend to kind of have a different approach on. So I think it's actually a strength that we celebrate more now than, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Wow. That's, that's really cool. I mean, it's, it's uh, awesome to see a firm that's like, oh, well, we kind of lucked into this, this great, but now we actually, now we value it and we want to, we we're being intentional about addressing gender equity in, in the workplace, in our workplace. So we have um, six partners. The founding, one is a founding, um, the president is a founding partner. The co-founding partner actually recently retired. They were both males. Um, our company has been around for 30 years. So the partners right now are six, um, five males, and then I'm actually the sixth. So I'm a female. So, well, congratulations on making partner. Thank you. Thank you. That's, good. That's a big deal. Thank so. you. Because we also know that, you know, if a woman of color or a woman will maybe be a little more intentional to hire women because of what they've had to go through to get where they are. But if, the majority were men, like they kind of stumbled into a really good thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, my the founding partners and, you know, the people who brought me on as, as kind of a little college kid and an intern way back in the day, were just always very supportive. You know, they, they appreciated talent and potential, I think when they saw it and I always felt supported and, you know, my endeavors, they always pushed me for excellence and greatness. Um, and you know, gender was not kind of at the forefront. The reality is you can, you know, you see a lot of depictions of architects in movies. You see a lot of, you know, depictions of architects in books and it's always a white male. That's the reality, right? Um, a lot of times we even come out of interviews and, you know, you see the competition you're up against and it's, you know, us as a very blended team, both from a gender as well as our diversity standpoint um, of cultural backgrounds, language backgrounds we speak. I believe it's seven languages in our office right now. And we're only a staff of 37, right? So that's a pretty high, high proportion. Yeah. And then you'll see like the other group walking out and, you know, it's predominantly white males, right? So uh, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy. It is a strength and it's a uniqueness of, you know, our company that right, we're really celebrating. And I think it's, it's great. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, I want to go, I want to start at the beginning a little bit though, because we jumped into this, this topic, but you mentioned like when you see an architect in a movie or you see an architect, you know, read about an architect in a book. Yes. They always look like white males, but we, if you're not an architect or you don't live with an architect um, or, you know, know an architect really well, you don't really know what, what architects do. So I want to talk to you, I want, you know, I'd love for you to tell us about a, what does it take to get there? And then what is the work? I mean, it's not, okay. So here's, here's what I'm thinking. The most recent example of an architect is Ted Mosby from yes. how I met your mother, right? That's probably the most recent one we have in our minds. I don't get the sense that he, everyday architects are designing these gigantic buildings that end up being monuments in the city. Right. Right. I mean, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love to be told, no, we actually designed the coolest buildings in the world. <laughs> but I, I'm guessing that's not it. So yes. that is not the majority <laughs> of, of what we do. Yes. 
So interesting question. And it is, this is not an uncommon question at all. I mean, sometimes I'm like, I don't even know if my parents know what I do on a day to day, right? Even though they saw me get through school, graduate school, all that. So I'll, I'll kind of start on how I got to where I am, what it takes to become an architect. I, I grew up in a house. I have one sister, um, first generation Greek immigrant parents, um, first generation here in America for me and my sister. So I don't have an architect per se in my family. I do have um, an uncle who's a civil engineer in Greece, which coincidentally is very similar to what architects in the States do. My dad was always a kind of a handyman. He used to be a carpenter at one point in his life. And I'm the eldest sister. So at that point, I was kind of my dad's right-hand man, right? There was no son, no no brother that existed. Um, so anytime there was a house renovation or something, you know, I was right there helping. Whether you wanted to or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, luckily for everybody involved, you know, I always wanted to be right there. So um, it kind of fostered and grew the sense of curiosity. Um, you know, I got kind of exposed to it as a potential career path in high school. You know, I had this, this strength in math and science and kind of the technical skills. But then I also had kind of this creative side that I wanted to explore and problem solve. And I really liked, you know, working with people. Um, I like meeting new people. I like talking to new people. I like kind of the social aspect of that. And, you know, there were a lot of discussions when I was picking the our college majors, you know, how about accounting? How about finance? You know, how about something like math? Because it was always a strength of mine. And I'm like, that's great. But I'm like, I don't want to just deal with numbers all day. Right. There's that a strength. That sounds like immigrant parents, by yes. the way. And <laughs> Shailsha and I are both first generation yes. Americans also. And I'm like, we can completely track with that. Like, why don't we just go into the, the medical field or law or engineering? Like just right. do that thing that you know is a straight line and then you get paid for that thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of this, well, I love that, but I can't look at numbers all, all day. So what can I do with that to kind of, you know, have this creativity side of it? I applied, um, got into University of Illinois in Champaign for my undergraduate, which was then and still is a top 10 architecture degree program. And my parents, if you ask them still to this day, they'll never forget this. We went down for a college orientation and had a couple meetings at the School of Architecture with a group of students and the professor that we met with was like, okay, well, I want you to take a look to your right and a look to your left. And the statistics pretty much show that only one of you will be there at graduation day. So we were like, okay, well, challenge accepted. <laughs> Here yeah. we go. <laughs> and then from there, it was a four-year bachelor degree and the rules at this point have changed. But in order to get your architecture license, which legally gives you the opportunity to practice as a architect in the state, um, either required a graduate degree, so a master's or additional internship hours. I had a thirst for knowledge. I wanted to pursue additional education. So I went and did a two-year master's degree at that point at University of Illinois too. And then practice, practicum hours follow from that. And then you can sit, take, I think at that point it was nine exams. It's since consolidated to seven exams. So there's kind of a board certification process that That's people, you know, exams. don't know. Yes. It's a lot of exams. So, um, but yes, I'm licensed, good to go. That's kind of how you get into the architecture field. But it's interesting because a big, um, a big challenge really in our industry is recruiting 
you know, new students and new people for the field. And it's exactly as you mentioned, it's there's kind of this unknowingness of who does this, the field that exists, and what do they do and how do you get into it, right? So there's this education component, which um, we do a lot of K through 12 school projects in our office. So we're always trying to get in front of students and just, you know, make them aware of this as a, as a career path, especially schools in, you know, disadvantaged communities, right? Who may not experience an art, you know, an interaction with an architect. It's so important to get in front of those students because if you think about it, kind of at, you know, the overarching thing is that everybody deals and interacts with architecture every single day, all day. You know, it's one of the only fields that impacts you every minute of the day. You know, doctors really are only impacting you when there's a problem, right? And it's hopefully minute periods of time in your life. You know, your accountant's going to help you with your taxes once a year. But just sitting here, you know, on the Zoom call, we're sitting in different environments. Are you comfortable? Do you have good sound acoustics? You know, are there distractions? Does the space make you feel happy? You know, all of that, it's all subconscious things that, um, you know, affect really your day to day. And it's it's a very powerful ability to be able to to kind of impact people just outside of, you know, your interactions daily on that, really. Absolutely. I'm always struck by, you know, I think if you say architect, people understand the basics, which is like they design buildings. Yes. But the power of architecture goes so far beyond like, is it going to shelter me and not implode? Like, right. Is it a safe sound structure? That's like a bare minimum. It's true. Right. I mean, you wouldn't want to build a house and it'd be like, and every time there's a breeze, it might blow over. Like the the three little pigs, we don't want three little pigs to approach architecture. I was just going to say, I might (laughs) say three little pigs. But even beyond that, the ability of architecture to, to be beautiful, right. To add to public spaces, um, to promote health um, and to promote safety in a community, like how it adds to community design is, is huge. You know, early in my public health career, which is another field where people are like, what do you, what do you yes. do? I did a lot. I did some work on um, community design and understanding sort of like where your assets are and how you could change things. Where your assets are. Assets are. Oh, not asses. Sounded like asses. <laughs> where are your asses? Well, a little bit of both. Probably. And that is kind of what she had to yes. do. Probably. Right where the community's pros and cons were um, and how you could use design, whether that's lighting or buildings or crosswalks or, you know, whatever it is to promote wellness. I was always struck by how one Chicago is such a beautiful city for architecture. Yeah. I mean, we are very lucky and blessed. The different eras and decades and buildings that have remained. And sometimes you're like, wow, I can't, I can't, like the whole brutalist movement where you're like, I can't imagine all, like every building in the world looking like that, that's feels like a jail. Um, but everything together is so moving, right? It tells a story. I, I just think people don't think that far ahead. Yeah. And I, I think you nailed it, Shailushi, when you just said it tells a story, right? I mean, if you ask architects what 
how to kind of define themselves with another word that's not architect, I think a lot of us will say problem solver. You know, we we solve problems and the problem is we need to build a building or the problem is we have this space that's not working for us or we have a disadvantaged community. How can we improve their space, right? Those are all problems. So further than just designing and putting pen on paper, it's how do we solve the problem in a way that's best suited for that specific group of people that we're trying to impact in situation. Obviously, you can tell by our required education, but architects are always lifelong learners, right? So we have this desire to, to kind of extract and research and learn about every specific, you know, project or, or community that we're impacting. And then how do we ap apply that creatively, uh, creatively to a setting? And how do we, you know, create a space designing you know, looking at things like color, of course, how does that make people feel? Where does a door go? You know, things that are just trivial. There's a saying that, you know, you don't necessarily always notice good design, but you notice bad design, right? If you're tripping over something on the floor every single day, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, what's going on here? But there's really that, that ability to problem solve that I think is is kind of a strength that a lot of people don't understand about what we do. You know, you layer on top of that, then, you know, fiscal responsibility, finances, you know, we obviously have contracts. So there's like this lawyer aspect and writing things that nobody warns you about in school, right? You're like, what do you mean I have to review contracts? Like what's going on here? I think that there's part of it too, where it's like, well, if you have money, do you get the more beautiful building? So some of the most like beautiful buildings are these huge pharma companies that they want to be seen from the highway, right? Miles away. And so how do you find equity there when like there is money with, with some of these big corporations, but that doesn't mean that, you know, disadvantaged community quote deserves a crappier, uglier building it might be functional, but we can't put in the time and effort to, to make it pretty or make it beautiful. Right. Right. Well, and I think, I mean, that's exactly right, Tosha, is that, you know, for some, it might be like, well, they don't have a lot of money to spend. Just give them, you know, shelter, keep them warm, dry and safe. Right. But our approach really is that good design is not a privilege. It's a right for everybody and good design that's appropriate for that user group may vary from project to project, right? Which is why understanding that user group and how the building is gonna be used is so important. There's a lot of creative things that can be done with the same amount of money. You know, there is, yes, you can get your big flashy buildings and obviously that has its, its place and its stance, but that doesn't mean that, you know, a disadvantaged community or school or anything like that has to sacrifice good design because of funds. You know, there's, we've been seeing obviously a lot of grant funding, especially in COVID of, you know, reallocating resources to, to kind of make up for some of this on, um, in, in school specifically. We've seen, you know, public and private partnerships that are kind of evolving from a way that can be beneficial from big pharma, as well as, you know, a, a public school system, for example. So there, there's this movement for more collaborative, um, creative problem solving and resource sharing that I think is really exciting right now 
in in our society really as a whole. That's that's really exciting. And I I you know, I love that you brought up like you don't know this good design, but you always know this bad design. And you know, there you can go on the on the internet and find any number of websites devoted to, you know, why would you do that? There's BuzzFeed articles. There are yeah, like, BuzzFeed articles. Yeah. Or or um, my recent favorite one. And the, some of that is interior design and some of it is architecture. But Zillow Gone Wild is just a... Yes. I mean, sometimes you look at that and you're like... Sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, this is a beautifully designed home. And sometimes you're like, I yes. don't understand <laughs> what happened here. Yes, I totally agree. And we look at it and you're like, it has to be a homeowner or somebody gone rogue with a very yeah. niche part, right? You're like, how right. is this possible? Like my colleagues in this, this doesn't make any sense, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, someone came in like, this is what I yeah, want. Exactly. Here right. is all of my money. There's a niche. There is a, very, you know, everyone's got yes. their little niche of, of preferences. But now and, they're trying to sell it. And that's a problem yeah. usually. <laughs> Nobody else wants that house. Yes. Um, it's, it's really, really fascinating. So how, um, how, what's your process like? So someone comes to you and says, I want to design a library. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's a very, um, there are a lot of great library designs, right? Yeah. Uh, I we do a design. lot of library work. So that's, you know, an actual question. Yes, yeah. it is appropriate. I want to design a public library for my town. Um, I, you know, we've got about mm-hmm. 50,000 people. Um, and we have, we need to redo our main public library. What's your process like? both creative and, and administrative. Sure. So, um, at the onset of a project like that, really, it's kind of a fact finding mission for us. And the most important thing for us at the beginning is to listen, right? We're not putting pen to paper. We're trying to understand what the needs of that library are and what the needs of that community are. So, um, traditionally we'll do kind of qualitative and quantitative assessments. So quantitative, you know, How many books do we need in the library? How many meeting spaces do we need in the library? Libraries have kind of transitioned to community centers, really, and, you know, the new third place. Um, So you've got home, work, Starbucks kind of invented this third place in the United States. And now libraries have have really kind of evolved into an additional third third place. Um, So it's understanding, you know, some of the numbers with that, as well as a budget that maybe was predetermined before, you know, we were... um, enlisted on a project team. And then dovetailed with that is the um, qualitative, right? And that is both talking and conducting town town hall meetings, um, online surveys, Pinterest boards, you know, anything, any different way that we can reach out to the community and ask them, what do you need? You know, what type of services do you think are underrepresented, <laughs> excuse me, in your community? Um, you know, a lot of times we'll hear that there's a lot of um, self-employed entrepreneurial people, right? And they need a work from home place that's not their home. So they need a little meeting room. They need a spot that they can bring a potential client and have a one-on-one meeting. You know, are those trending higher in that community than other communities? And then what do you want your library to look like, right? Traditional, modern, colorful. You know, there's all sorts of different um kind of feedback that we'll we'll solicit in various different forums to kind of create this charter statement for the project. 
And then everything from there that we do when we're kind of, you know, including getting down to the nitty gritty of where do you put a door or color is, you know, how does that support or not support the, the charter statement for that project, right? And then as we kind of develop the project from there, it's bringing on eng our engineering team of consultants, you know, various mechanical, electrical, structural, plumbing, um, all the other team on our people on our project team who will help us make an entire building and working with, with the library and the community to, you know, understand how are you gonna maintain your building, right? How mm -hmm. is this building gonna, gonna live with you and grow with you? Do we need a plan for a multi-phase project with future additions, right? And it's having all kind of those levels of, of discussions. And as we, we move through that process, everything starts getting a little more and more detailed, right? So um, it gets down to the nitty gritty of what color do you want your door handle to be? What do you want your door handle to look like, right? And again, always checking with project budget. We will do our estimates and make sure that, especially for public projects, right, that are publicly funded taxpayers' money, we have a responsibility to be, you know, good partners in executing those funds that have been allocated for this project. We're always cross-checking with that. And at some point then we'll be ready to issue what we call construction documents, which essentially imagine like you've got a new board game and you get, you know, the instruction guides of how to play that board game. Our construction and contract documents are kind of the instruction guide of how to build a building. Um, at that point, and this is a traditional process, I'll say at that point, then we have a general contractor that joins our project team and actually takes our instruction manual and, and builds a building. That's kind of overview in a nutshell with a lot of time in between and a lot of meetings and discussions and decisions. A lot of pulling out hair probably. Ah! You know, most of the time it's pretty good. It's a very exciting process. So, uh, Kosha, you and I will have to go to the Riverside Public Library. Yes. Uh, it's not too far from us, Riverside. Yeah, yeah that's that really is, close that's a us. project um, that Athie's studio worked on. So, oh, I was just oh, looking I'd at be this. Happy like, to meet you there. Yeah. Oh, that would be Maybe. awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. Um, and, and talk us through, ooh, we could actually do our first like bonus. Oh, um, Ooh, and and Lagrange too. Wow, oh, you've done a lot of stuff around. And here. I bet you we could do a podcast episode there in one of their rooms. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, we definitely have meeting rooms. Yeah, I'm sure. We'd be more than happy to meet you guys there. That'd be great. Very cool. All right, so now I got distracted because that was very <laughs> beautiful. I mean, and I have a love affair with with like new libraries. Perfect. Kosha knows we both went to the same college. I was just going to bring, I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> and the library that they had when we were there in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands was brutalist style. The windows were like, you know, like one foot across mm -hmm. or tall, dark, everything was musty. You went in to get a book <laughs> yeah. or to study and then you, and you ran out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I never went in that. I only went in to pick up the interlibrary transfers. And then I left. I didn't, even, I like, I, I just like looked it up on the computer and then I was like, oh, I can order it. And then I'll go pick it I up. I had that like there. musty library but, smell too. That sounds about right. So at U of I, the uh, undergraduate library was underground. Oh boy. <laughs> with, with one courtyard that led in light. Uh, so yes, I understand it was that, that era, right? 
after we left, and not that even many years after we left, yeah, uh, the president of the university, who is this like big, big deal, who's this amazing guy, he passed away, and they built a new library in his honor as the Minor Myers Library, and it is stunning. Like That's it awesome. is. It's a place I'm like, I would have gotten even better grades if I had that. It's gorgeous and it's functional, but it's, it's awe inspiring. It's beautiful. As you said, it's a third place. It, you know, as yes. it home office, it's actually, or dorm room, classroom. It's actually a place that you want to spend time in. Um, you know, it's light, it's airy, it's ugh, the color scheme. Everything was really beautiful. It's amazing. Um, you know, when I was little, I remember the library in our childhood home or childhood, you know, the town I grew up in because we used to go with my mom to do the crafts, right, that they had in their arts and crafts area. But then all through, you know, high school, it's not like I ever went to the library to study, right? It just, it was a place I had gone to to craft. It was an older building at that point. Um, and it kind of was what it was. But with this transition now, it's not just, you know, adults that we're seeing go back to libraries like we we have some new libraries that we built with dedicated teen centers and they are slammed with teens after school you know who are there to kind of hang out and play video games who are there to study like during finals it's like well you better hurry up and get to the library otherwise you're not going to find anywhere to sit right which is so exciting because that was just never on our right right absolutely so it's 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 really exciting it's awesome yeah that's 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 really amazing. You know, I, I think we didn't quite answer, or maybe I I just didn't pick up, but you know, like what does an architect do? <laughs> I, I will say I'm very impressed that my first memory of seeing an architect in media is not a white man, it's a white woman. Do you know who it was? Uh, oh, you're going to say it and I'm going to know because I know there was, um, there was a TV show I know with a white woman. Yeah, it's at least, Elise Keaton from Family Ties. Oh, okay. That is not oh, that's right. She was okay, an architect. You're right. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, anyway, so I'm like, ooh, I uh, like that. Good for was, you. That well, not just me, but I'm like, that's pretty cool that she was at least like ahead of the curve. You know, it is true that I think everyone's like, oh, you're gonna become an architect. You're gonna be making buildings. I'm gonna see these buildings. But that cannot be because we would have a lot more buildings if that's all. Right. <laughs> right. So what is it that you do? And then where, what is it that you don't do, right? Because you mentioned like door handles. Where does like, let's say interior design come in? Where where does architecture stop and something else takes over? Or sure. structural design or sure. industrial design or whatever, yeah. Sure. Clearly answering what an architect does is a hard question. Okay, well, let me, maybe this is a better way to put it. In the process of, someone coming to you and saying, I, I want to build a building. We have the money. I want to build a building to cutting the ribbon. You can think of us as like the captain of the team. Okay. So you are architects are involved the entire, the entire way. way, the whole way through. Right. So I would say probably like a captain is, you know, captain on a sports team or the quarterback on a sport on a sports team. That's probably, you know, a great analogy. And then we've got our team of consultants on there. So as far as, you know, Kosha to answer your original question, 
not everyone's a star architect, right? The people who are building the billion dollar tallest building in the world, you know, that is a very- Star architect. <laughs> architect, yes. The people who are like, there's no budget on this project, <laughs> you know, it's amazing type of work, but not everybody is going to be able to do that. I want to use the word portico here. I don't know what it is, but I want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, a big majority of us do smaller projects depending on where you work in jurisdiction in most renovation projects an architect's oversight and stamp on the drawings and review of the drawings is required so like a lot of the work we do um because our work is primarily focused on public sector you know libraries school park districts fire stations police stations things like that and workplace interiors is that we do a lot of projects that are just door replacements right which sounds so fascinating to people when I tell them that, yes, <laughs> architects do door replacement projects because you just see a door and it's a door, right? And I see a door and I'm like, okay, what size is the door? What material is a door? What stain color is the wood? What type of hardware? The combinations of hardware on a door is fascinating. Um, you know, lever, how does it lock? How do you unlock it? Does it close automatically? Does it not? What type of hinge? You know, there's like series of questions, right? But a lot of the work that we do is things of that nature too. You know, that requires and involves an architect too, all the way down to that level. On larger projects, as I said, we're kind of team captain, we're quarterback, right? We're, we're arranging all of our consultants, we're coordinating them. We are driving the design and the overall plan with obviously their collaboration. So our, a typical team on, let's just say a new building would be architect, Structural engineer. So the structural engineer is responsible for working with us to do, you know, column layout beams, but size then, you know, specifically how big of a column do we need? How deep do our foundations need to go? That is structural engineer's focus. A mechanical engineer who we work with to design what type of HVAC system, you know, how he's been responsible for sizing that system, right? Where do the ducts go? What size duct work? all of that, that infrastructure. An electrical engineer who we coordinate, obviously, you know, here's where we want lights. Here are the type of lights we want. And then he needs to figure out, you know, okay, how do we get power to those lights? How do we switch the lights? All of that um, infrastructure, a plumbing or fire protection. So we'll work with them on, on toilet room layouts. We'll provide that information to them. And then they are doing routing diagrams and drawings and specifications for how do we get water? You know, how do we get sanitary and waste out of the building? Where do we need sprinklers, sprinkler system? A civil engineer, which deals with everything about five feet outside of the building and out to the street. So our civil engineers are really the, the leads on, okay, where do we have services from the city, right? Where's the water main? Where's the main power? Where can we bring that to our building? And then interior designers. So depends on the firm, really. And the reason I say that is, you know, when you have your, your billion dollar buildings, very frequently you have companies that do the architecture or what I'll call kind of the shell of a building. And then you have interior designs or interior architects who do everything inside. Our company does both. So we're going start to finish. We have... Uh, architects on staff, as well as interior designers and designers. A lot of our architects do interior design. 
some of our interior designs also interior designers also work on, you know, helping us with building envelope and that. So it's really kind of a very collaborative process. But for our for our firm of our size, it's you know pretty common that that all is kind of under one one umbrella. And that includes, you know, picking carpets out, picking paint colors out, all of that, that kind of stuff. We don't do typically like designing new door handles, right? Or things like that, that then are more manufacturer driven or industrial designer driven. But we'll work with manufacturers to, you know, help us pick and specify the right type of window for our application, the right type of roof, right? All of that. But ultimately it's up to us as, you know, the architects on the project to, to decide and, and specify that system. In the middle of listening to you talk, which, okay, let, I have to split this up into two thoughts, right? One, I really appreciate that because my thought was also always like, here's your designs. We're done now. And that might be true in some very, very unique circumstances. Um, but I guess you don't just get to like deliver some drawings and be like, well, now I did my job. Now you do uh, it. <laughs> yeah. So we actually, so that's the first three phases of a project. There's traditionally five phases. So there's schematic design, design development, contract documents, which are, you know, getting to the drawings and having a complete set of drawings and specifications. And then there's bidding and procurement, which we will work with our owners to solicit bids, general contractors, review that pricing and all the qualifications with them. Um, and then there's construction, right? So we will actually see it through all, all the way. When we're in the construction phase, our role as architects really transitions to working with the contractor, both to resolve, you know, unforeseen conditions that arise when you dig into the earth and you don't know what you're going to find sometimes, or, you know, a material has been discontinued and we need to find a substitute, right? Um, as well as ensuring on the owner's behalf that what the owner is expecting, what they paid for, what we drew and specified is what is actually getting built on site. So it's, it's kind of a system of checks and balances as well yeah. from the owner's side, but it's really to ensure that, you know, that vision that we worked with and started with the community way back when for what their needs and wants and desires are, right, is actually seen through all the way into the end. So, you know, ribbon cutting days, grand opening days are awesome. It's like this big celebration, you know, that sometimes projects are two years long, you know, it sometimes they're longer depending if they put, get put on pause, on hold, but being able to, you know, be there and, and really appreciate that you were kind of a team member of this whole process with, with the owner is, is so gratifying. That's awesome. The other thing I was going to mention, Kosha, is we need to definitely give a shout out somewhere in this episode. Maybe this is a moment <laughs> um, to, so we have an aunt and a cousin who, uh, <laughs> my dad's sister-in-law. Um, so our aunt is an architect and was a practicing architect That's awesome. for a long time um, in Connecticut. And then uh, her daughter went through school for architecture and then actually went into, into industrial design. Ooh, good for her. That's great. So we have, we have people in our family who do this work. And I just want to make sure that we That's mention great. that, that we had, have not forgotten that these people do this work. Galyani Kaki and Rishwa, you're amazing. I just love how those things come together. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a question. What is a portico? <laughs> <laughs> A portico of 
is typically kind of an, an arched entryway to, to uh, a building. I would not have guessed that, but thank you. For <laughs> you, you are welcome. Hard hitting questions from Kosha. <laughs> ready, I'm ready, bring them on. Uh, what are the biggest challenges that you have faced or anticipate, like if you could say like, okay, I'm, this is going to be a typical design project. I don't even know if there's such a thing, but imagine, you know, everything goes about as well as you planned. Where do you find the biggest challenges? Where, you know, where are the biggest sticking points? That's a hard question. Um, they always seem to be unexpected, right? <laughs> well, like you said, like, Hey, you're never going to know what you find when you start digging into the ground. Like, it seems like that would be a time when you'd be like, oh, we might have to rethink this. Yes. Sometimes you have to think creative um, and, you know, pivot quickly, react quickly. I will say just because I know it's kind of on the, on the topic of where we started the discussion and, uh, you know, I, I think your, your listeners might be interested in this just because again, you know, there's not a lot of females and women in architecture, right? And there's already a, we're already a minority in on the architect side of things, but then once you transition to construction, I mean, you want to talk about a minority there that is, you know, even, even more, more of a difference mm -hmm. in numbers. So, you know, there have been instances, I will say personally in my career, and it, they've been very, very few and far in between limited, but, you know, there are some contractors who, whether they knowingly do it or don't knowingly do it, don't initially credit what you're saying that you are an expert mm. in your field, right? Whether that's their implicit bias or unconscious bias working, whether that's just their past personality and that's the type of person they are, you know, very non-collaborative in general with everybody. Um, you know, that is something obviously I have encountered and I'm sure my colleagues will say the same. And by no means is it, you know, a recurring thing. It's not an overwhelming thing in the industry, but you know, there have been instances and it's, it's always a challenge where it's like, okay, you know, that's, that is your opinion, but I'm going to explain to you how I got to this, why I got to this, my experience level. And, you know, this is what we need to do. And sometimes it does, you know, require a little bit of reassurance and, you know, some, some ammo, let's say from, from a colleague to diffuse a situation. But, you know, that is, that is the reality of the construction industry, um, which has made great strides as of late, both from the in-office construction um, personnel, you know, management side of having more females in the field and women in the field, um, as well as, you know, out on site, out on trades. I, it's becoming a little bit more common, right, to see female electricians or, um, you know, people of that nature, including non-binary, right? That's, that's been kind of a unspoken thing in the industry but there are there are more and more people in the, in, uh, in construction so that is definitely you know becoming less and less um of a thing hopefully i have all those interactions behind me at this point it has been a while so i'll give that uh give that to everybody i mean it's interesting how like there's sort of the 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 day-to-day work-related challenges like oh we there's a giant boulder here and we didn't know there's a giant boulder and that and we've noted this before that if you are working in a non-traditional field and we did a whole season on people in non-traditional fields right you face the additional hurdle 
of having to convince people that you know what you're talking about. And so it's, if, you know, it's not just like, look at these plans and they're, you're not getting criticized on, I don't know that this line, you know, I don't know that this wall is going to work here. It's, do you know what you're talking about? Because of the, I don't think this line is, you know, this wall is going to work here. There's sort of like two things you have to get over and how exhausting that can be. Yeah. Well, I also think like women in STEM fields also have the added pressure of like stereotype threat, right? So now if I do something, I am representing all Indian women ever to exist, right? And not just, yeah, Kosha knows what she's talking about. Athi knows what she's talking about. Chelsea knows what she's talking about. But now you are representing all female architects. I knew that you, like women didn't know how to do this or whatever. I'm sure at a certain point, how you were saying like, okay, I'm gonna give you the reasons and stuff. At a certain point, you're just like, no, because I'm the boss. Yeah. I mean, do you get pushed to that point where you're like, no, 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 just, I don't have to explain to you. <laughs> I've already explained to you. And now you just have to do what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. I will say, um, you know, there's been an instance where, you know, kind of, I won't say behind my back, but yeah, I mean, behind my back, there was a question of, you know, a, a request, I would say, which was a required request. So if we want to say demand, um, you know, something that was installed wrong, right. That had to be, it wasn't installed correctly. It had to be replaced. The contractor had made a, a call to somebody else in our office and, you know, this is what I'm being told. Like, can you talk to her? And he's like, I don't know why you're calling me. Like, she's a hundred percent right. Like it is what it is. Right. And that was kind of the end of that conversation. Mm. Again, it's few and far in between. And I will say that my personal experience is that I do think a lot of that is kind of aging out of the, of the industry. You know, our, our generation has just been exposed to this more collaborative, you know, accepting non-traditional fields, you know, choice to STEM and all that as, um, you know, it's, it's not as rare and uncommon. So people are just, whether you're male, female, non-binary, et cetera, it's, if you know your stuff and you're good, you're good. Right. So I, I was, you know, as we were talking about that, I was thinking in the previous season, we talked to my best friend, who's a mechanical engineer, um, but she works at Lawrence Berkeley national lab and you know, just listening to you talk about, yeah, you know, I have experienced, you know, in the past, uh, um, you know, a male construction manager or, you know, someone basically like questioning my bona fides to say, do I even know what I'm talking about here? And just struck by the fact that how quickly, how quickly um, corporate business needs to adapt to what people expect and how they expect to be treated Otherwise, you know, if, if your partners didn't stick up for you, you'd be like, I don't want to work here and you go somewhere else. Right. Um, and so businesses have to be responsive to what their talent, talented people, how they expect to be treated as opposed to, you know, a scientific government-based laboratory where you get in at 22 and you you just hang on till retirement um, and there's no motivation to change. I mean, there's no motivation to change anything in government. That's why the DMV works the way the DMV works. Right. <laughs> but it's, you know, if you come in and so 
she's working with people who are, you know, have been doing this for 45 years. And so their attitudes are still from 45 years ago. And they're the way that they act is still how they would, you know, have acted 45 years ago. There's just no impetus to change. Right. Well, and I think, and maybe this is the difference between, you know, a public company and a government more, more private is that the reality of, you know, our current environment is that with social media, you can't hide, right? Like, and people have options now. So people have options and you can't hide, you know, something like this, if it's a rampant poison running through your company, it's not going to be a secret. You know, people aren't going to have to meet somebody in person to get this information out there or write like an op-ed, you know, to a newspaper and just hope people can read it. It's, it's a two second tweet and you're done, right? That's, we've seen all the cancel culture lately and, you know, whatever you think of cancel culture either way, but that's just the reality of the world we live in is that there's so much information out there and some of these bad and negative behaviors just they can't fly, you know, it's, it's also unsustainable for a company and irresponsible. Um, and then really employees have options, right? Like we don't lock the doors every day. People show up and say, no, you can't go anywhere. And anything that happens here stays here, right? It's not Vegas in our office. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, it, you know, and, and we've always respected that and it's never, you know, been an issue um, in my workplace setting personally. Um, but it, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, that is, there every once in a while you do do hear of work environments like that and you're just like oof. yeah absolutely I mean and like you were saying there's people can lead people vote with their my husband always says people vote with their butts or their their feet or their seat so if you're happy or if you're willing to put up with it you sit down you do your work if not you walk and and employers pay attention if they cannot keep talent um, because of whatever. And, and you're right that in the world of social media, all you need to go on, all you need to do is go on Glassdoor and rate them, blah, 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 or Yelp or, you know, tweet or 140 character, two sentences. Yeah. It could take down an entire corporation. Yeah. So, um, it, I would say that's definitely an upside of social media. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, you know, things can't really be private anymore in the way that they used to be. Right. And for those companies and entities that are genuine and are doing the right thing, we have nothing to worry about. Right. Like, you know, it's not great. That's us out there. It is what it is. You know, we, it's not anything we need to be concerned about. Right. Because we've always had good ethics, you know, talented people were supportive of our staff. Right. But if um, you're worried about that, like if you're worried about something, that's a red flag, that, right. Then maybe you need to already be looking at your internal structures. Exactly. Absolutely. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about specific work that you and your firm have done. Um, I am a parent of a child on the autism spectrum. So I'm, I'm really interested in, in the sort of the the ways design can be used to support mental health and physical health, I think too, for people who um, have neurodiversity issues. Definitely. And I should say diagnosable neurodiversity issues. The thing that I'm always struck by, I remember when my son was diagnosed, the, the person who was doing all the testing and, you know, sort of figuring out what is disqualify and all this stuff said, you know, he said, you know, this is a, this is a condition that people made up in contrast to 
it's not a virus, right? If I have the, if I have COVID, I have a thing. There's an actual thing called COVID that exists in the world that you can point to. And you say, this is a thing that's making you sick. There's a, like, you can actually tell that biologically, but a lot of the neurodiversity stuff, ADHD, autism spectrum, OCD, people qualify or don't qualify, or they, you know, they, they hit the threshold or don't hit the threshold, depending upon what people decide the threshold is. Right. And, and not to say that the neurodiversity doesn't exist, right? It's really clear that my son and my daughter, my older kid have very, their brain activities are very different. They approach the world in a very, very different way. But the fact that one would be, you know, diagnosed and the other wouldn't be diagnosed has a lot to do with what we decide is diagnosable. So social norms change. So it's not that we've made it up. The neurodiversity isn't made up. I, wa I wanna make sure that we don't get angry emails and phone calls. <laughs> that the neurodiversity isn't made up, but what is considered neurodiverse often does kind of change with the times. So that's what you mean, right? Like the well, that, absolutely, that's what I mean. That the criteria for diagnosis change, and so if you change the criteria, a different percentage of the population will be diagnosed. But I think the other thing I'm getting at is, it's a it's a man made, a person decided threshold, mm -hmm. and that if you fall below the threshold, does not mean that you don't have neurodiversity needs. So I'm particularly you know, fascinated by how do we design public spaces that, okay, just because I'm not diagnosed with ADHD doesn't mean I don't need a lot of the supports that someone with ADHD might need because I haven't been diagnosed, but I still experience a lot of the same symptoms, right? That I think that's where I was getting at. And so to bring those two elements together in public spaces is awesome. Yeah. Well, so I think um, I'll kind of start by saying this. There's there's kind of this thought on, okay, you're designing for a neurodiverse person, right? But what we need to always remember is that something that benefits a neurodiverse person, whatever that definition of neurodiversity is that day or twice exceptional is that day, that's going to benefit everybody else. Like we're not talking about two different designs, right? That is going to help one person and just drastically, you know, have somebody enabled to, to live in, and work and breathe in that space. Right. So design for neurodiversity really benefits all. The opposite <laughs> is true, right? Where if you just design for quote, I put this in air quotes, the normal average neurotypical person that can actually cause someone who is neurodiverse to not be able to function and breathe in that space. Exactly. So what, what you're really getting at is like the more diverse, the more diversity that we design for a space is just going to be beneficial overall. Exactly. One kind of tangible example, lighting, right? It, students um, and children on the autism spectrum are more um, sensitive to, to their circadian rhythm and how we relate and react to sunrise, sunset, and sun level changes throughout the day. 
sometimes if you're in a school environment, you'll see um, a special education classroom where the teachers have installed the blue kind of cloud fabrics over lights, if you've seen those. And the teachers in those settings are being innovative with their resources to address a specific need of their students. The lighting, especially in old fluorescent lighting, can tend to flicker, something that, you know, we probably don't notice or don't notice it as as prevalently as somebody with neurodiverse uh, needs may. Or it might annoy you, but it won't debilitate you. It, right? exactly. like, I'm super annoyed with that. I remember even being in high school and college being like, that's annoying, but I could kind of move past it, move through. Right, exactly. And then in the older lighting, it also tends to be a little bit more yellow, right? So a, a project we recently did that was a building specifically for, for students with special needs and neurodiversity students. In their learning spaces, we installed dimmable and color tunable lighting. And again, that's, we're giving the teachers the option to make a space customized for, for their students that need it. If you go into that school on any given day, there is a teacher who knows her students at the beginning of the day needs something a little bit more bright alert, right? Kind of needs to get students going. As they they kind of transition towards the end of the day, your circadian rhythm is then trying to, you know, get ready for, for nighttime and getting ready to go to sleep. And so they'll start to kind of tune some of that lighting temperature back to a little bit more warmer, cozy. And their students, especially those with autism, will just react to that so positively, right? And it's so simple. And any, you know, non-autistic person is just going to benefit of that too, right? It's it's again, it's mimicking things of the sun. It's our biological existence, right? And it's just supportive of that. But a student with autism is so much more impacted by that and so much more sensitive to that. So that's, you know, just one tangible low hanging fruit element of how, how that little design impact and change can really benefit all. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. I'm surprised I didn't know that about uh, people on the spectrum, but it's a spectrum too, right? That's true. It's absolutely true. But it makes, when you said that, I was like, oh, that explains my kid because <laughs> he, for the, after he, you know, after his like first two years where he was still like, you know, waking up a lot, you know, those baby years, whatever. And you're like, could you just get on a regular schedule? <laughs> he has been on a regular schedule since, since like the time he was three years old, where he's like nine 30 to six 30. He goes to sleep at 9.30 and he wakes up at 6.30. And if he sleeps till seven, I'm like, he must be sick. Yeah. It's so surreal. He really, I mean, he's like so in tune with his circadian rhythms. It's also fascinating. When he gets up in the morning, he turns on all the lights and he opens all the windows. Yeah. Um, and that is, that's fascinating because I never thought about that, but I'm very light sensitive. Um, I have a hell of a time getting out of bed in the morning when it's dark. I'm with you. <laughs> as soon as a uh, light hits my eye, I'm like, let's go. I never really thought about that. And just how you can use it. It's a non-punitive way of influencing a classroom um, or, or a library space or a learning space or a, any other kind of space, a Definitely. therapeutic space. Definitely. Wow. I mean, we're, think of it, right? We're, we've evolved as humans, you know, we're not crawling around on fours anymore. But at some point, we didn't have alarm clocks. Our bodies depended on the sun to tell us, hey, wake up, go hunting, go find some food. And okay, hey, this, you know, it's about to be nighttime. You need to go find shelter 
and, and go to sleep, right. And prepare, you know, rest for the next day. So that's all still part of, of our biologies. Science and the research community has just made fascinating strides in recent years to really study, you know, the neuroscience of, of us as people and us as how we experience, experience space. And with just how interconnected our world is now is, you know, we have neuroscientists and biologists and neurologists who, you know, are contributing their expertise to our field to help us as architects and designers better understand, you know, how the brain works, right? So there's been fascinating studies where you walk into a room, you, you see a door in the corner, right? You don't even cognitively recognize that you see a door, but your brain is processing so many processes automatically that it's telling you, okay, door, exit, you know, emergency, find that space. Like, what does that door look like? How does it make me feel? Is it going to make me scared of the space? Like it's automatically doing all these processes. And we've been able to kind of trend some of this stuff now with the research. And it's just fascinating to actually have some, you know, data behind some of this stuff, right? We always knew for years that everybody wants a window in their office. Everybody wants a window in their classroom. But now there are actually studies where you can see students' test scores improve when they have, you know, access to daylight and natural views. Like there's actually data, right? And ways to measure things like that. So it's just, it's so fascinating. And the, um, you know, the, on top of that, really for, you know, our students who are neurodiverse, our adults who are neurodiverse, twice, twice exceptional, you know, that, that research is also now starting to really kind of come again with bringing all these experts together and how do we create spaces that, you know, address these very specific needs, but also benefit the whole. There's power in being different, right? So how do we, how do we celebrate that? And how do we capitalize on that power? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I, um, and I was going to ask, is it something, is this the kind of thing that you go and get training in, get a certification in, or are there special consultants that you talk to who are like, here's what we can tell you about what we know around, you know, how people react to windows and, and doors and, you know, wh where things have to be in relation to each other, whether they enter in the front of the room or the back of the room. I don't, I can't, I mean, I feel silly saying that, but also I'm like, why not? I mean, that might actually make a difference. I have no idea, but. Mm -hmm. Well, think, I mean, think of a movie theater, right? How different would you feel if you were late to a movie and you had to enter a movie theater at the oh, front of a movie awful. theater? Yeah. That'd be awful, right? Like, but that right there is a decision on how you feel in, in that space. Bet you a lot more people would get there on time then. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably. So I'm an accredited learning environment planner. So as part of that, there's core competencies and um, included in that is a great focus on research, right? And, and being able to find this information and, and use and apply the information. I will say specifically, and Shay Lushi, you can talk to this. I mean, this is paramount and, you know, comp kudos and compliments to you is that when we're dealing with our children that have special needs is that the caregiver and their parent and the teacher in that room every day with them knows them best, right? They are the expert. And you know, on this, this project specifically, again, with, with the lighting is that having them be a partner on the team, you know, is, is just worth, worth its weight in gold, really. 
you know, we're always going to keep learning and we're, you know, architects need to know a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff or, you know, a lot of things about a lot of stuff. Right. And at some point you can't be an expert in every little thing, but we know who can we bring in to help us, you know, kind of bridge that gap we might have. And especially in those, in those settings, it's really, they see it every day, right? You see it every day, you know, your son likes to wake up at, you know, 630 in the morning and all the lights are on, right? Like, that's so important to know. And instead of going, oh, he's on the spectrum. That's just like something he does. Actually digging into why does he do that? And even if we don't understand why he does it, how can we help foster this environment that is going to take into account that? I mean, you know, he's he's up and ready to go at 630 in the morning, right? So give him something to do, you know, maybe his work schedule in the future is 630 in the morning start, you know, having that adaptability and that, that personalization is only, is only going to help everybody. And I think it's finding that individuality and, and capitalizing it. Um, that That's really powerful. So research is always ongoing, but, you know, to your original question, it's, it's not always there. There is no guidebook specifically on, Hey, Here's here's a school for you know students with autism. Here's a checklist to go down the 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 checklist, right? And part of that too is that if you've got a just a checklist for everything, are you really making it a site specific, community specific answer to their specific needs? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, the research is evolving all the time. That what we know by the time you make a checklist, it's probably already outdated because we've learned more about whether it's, you know, people who are twice exceptional or have other kinds of special needs or, right. I think there's also the, we did haven't even touched on what we're learning about how to make buildings more accessible to people who have physical limitations. You know, what was it? Somebody told me that one of the biggest advances for people who have mobility issues is the zero entry um, crosswalk. I don't know if that's exactly what it's called, but this idea that, you know, the curb disappears at the crosswalk, and you, there's no step down um, and how big of a, you know, for people who are, you know, sort of fully abled, that little step is not something we ever think about. But if you have, I mean, our mom had knee problems for the longest time. If you have mobility issues or you're in a wheelchair or you have, you know, sort of vision issues or whatever it is, that could be a real minefield. And so bringing that also, I mean, I realize that's not architecture, but bringing those elements in, like we're learning just so much about how we can make buildings, public spaces, you know, structures more accessible and combine it with aesthetics. So it's not like, well, now we have a clunky building that's fully functional. Right, right. But to your point from before, it actually does, it can benefit fully abled people because like, for example, as a runner, I'm definitely going to go up that crosswalk where I don't have to jump over a curb, right? And so it's just nothing that would have been designed for me, but I actually still can benefit from it. So again, just like keeping that like whole overarching picture in mind. Um, so before I know she's going to move on to her, the second to last question, but I wanted to just ask, do you have a favorite building? Hard hitting questions again, hard hitting question. Okay. I'm not going to pick one I've worked on because that's like asking me to pick my favorite child. They're all special for their own reason. 
I would say if you were asking like my favorite building in downtown Chicago, the Tribune Tower has always been my favorite. The Tribune Tower. Yeah. The Tribune Tower is, um, I think it's just, you've seen it. If you look up, you'll see the pictures. You'll recognize it. It's right on Michigan Avenue. Um, it's just a, a beautiful building. Oh, it's very beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I would also say on top of my list, uh, more globally worldwide would be Sagrada Familia. And I also think that that's a very mm -hmm. ornate building, beautiful structure, but it's also fascinating to me, the years and years and years of work that that project has taken on. And the and years and years and years is going to be, I lived in Barcelona yes. for some time. Oh, awesome. And it is, first of all, inside empty, right? Like doesn't look like anything, <laughs> looks like a parking garage that hasn't been built with the parking structure yet but the outside and and what is so and I don't know jack shit about architecture but how can you get away with on one side of the building this like beautiful ornate very just decorative uh overly like ornate side and structure and then on the other side it's like modern straight lines clean it's so weird and so fascinating. It is fascinating. I would say you can ask the people who owned uh, Soldier Field and then added that addition onto Soldier Field. So there was the old Soldier Field, which was very classical in design, and then they put the spaceship in it. So how could you get away with doing that? And the second thing is, how look at the look at the main Rush Hospital. Yeah, and be like, how did you come up with the the top part with the bottom part? Like, who decided that this was a this was a good design? <laughs> idea? Also, Athi, I'm gonna say four words, and I want to know if you're gonna react to them the way I think you are. <laughs> okay, Carl Sandburg High School. Oh, Carl Sandburg. Oh, because you guys graduated from Carl. Sandburg, I did. Right? I did. Shale Shade okay. in that, but I did, and our two younger siblings. I went to Carl Sandburg before the extension and then, uh, or whatever you want to call it, the monstrosity, whatever you want to call it. But, and it's not, it's not like the new part looks bad. It's that they don't match. It's so different. Right. They're right. so different. They look like two different buildings that they just mushed together. I think a lot of, a lot of schools like that, you know, I just drove past the Lake Forest High School and the original Lake Forest High School building looks like an English manor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then the addition is like glass and steel and it's it it's like they just shoved to okay stick it on yeah, there right 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 and sometimes sometimes that is the direction right sometimes that is we want it to be different you know it may it may have been intentional uh, we do work at Carl Sandburg now but I will say that we did not do that addition. I know you did I know you did <laughs> and that's why I brought it up but um so some things age better than others too. <laughs> the way that we connected with you is through Scott Delano, right? And uh, he used to be our neighbor and we, we got along with him so well, they've since moved, but he, uh, he would do, he was a runner too. And there was one building every time he would come home for a run, he would like bitch about that. <laughs> he would just pick it apart and it bothered him. To, like it probably that's probably why he moved because he's like I don't want to see that building anymore. I, I might have to ask him tomorrow about this building and be you like, you know, see too, if I like... get a trigger warning. Oh yeah, so it's you know, and it's it's 
um, it's subconscious that you do it. You walk into a new space and your brain is like, looking, 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 and like, why this, why, you know, and, and then sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, turn it off. Right. You're like, I'm at somebody's wedding. Like what I need to focus on this wedding. Like it's just like nonstop. And so I can easily see Scott, you know, or any of us, like, once you find something like that and it doesn't make sense and then it just drives you mad. Right. And you're trying to understand why, who, yeah, exactly. It's like, there's just no logic behind this. Like, did somebody think this looked good or like, what was the reasoning? Right. So yeah, it is, it's hard to turn that off as an architect. It's always disappointing when it just kind of goes, you know, goes sideways and you're like, wow, you just missed the opportunity to make that really great. Well, I hope as an architect that whoever lives there enjoys it and it is their dream home. That's to our, the start of our conversation. Yes. I hope that too. And then it's going to go on Zillow gone wild. And they're going to be like, no one wants to buy this thing. Possible. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed talking to us. I have found it incredibly eye-opening. Like, I just, I'm like, wow. I actually have a very good friend from college who also went to University of Illinois. He now lives in Arizona. He does, uh, a lot of his projects tend to be on government buildings. So he's done, he did the most recent building he did was the U.S. consulate in Qatar. And hearing him talk about like design challenges in a country where you want it to represent your country, then it's a totally different set of situations with who you're working with, the materials you're working with, and the landscape you're working with. And so, and that's like way over there. That's like, wow, that is the <laughs> building, right? That's a architect type thing where you're like, wow, you designed the consulate, but the Riverside Library, the Lagrange Library while they probably aren't as like flashy and they don't get as much attention. I think the, the joy in knowing that someone I know worked on some of that stuff is like, oh, you can see the utility and the joy it brings to people every day instead of like, oh, it's this cool building way over there. Jeremy, no, no, I'm not <laughs> trying to slag on you. You do awesome work. But I think there's a real like, I can experience this for myself um, as opposed to being like, that's beautiful but I can experience how the design, the structure, you know, the choice of layout, all of that stuff makes mm -hmm. people's lives better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very well summarized. Thank you. So our second to last question is always, what advice would you give to somebody? And I'm going to, you know, I'm like somebody that's open and question, but what would you, what advice would you give to someone who's either considering architecture um, or is it sure how to get into architecture? Sure. Um, well, I, oh, those are kind of hard questions. Um, I guess my advice would be to identify if you have a passion for it, right? It's a very, um, it's a public serving and very selfless job. And you're always looking to create spaces for others, right? And there's great reward in that, but there's also great responsibility. If that brings you joy, I think it's worth exploring architecture. It's a very rewarding field. And so I guess my words of encouragement would be, you know, look at some books, look online, talk to me. I'm more than happy to talk to any, you know, young budding students and architects. I frequently do at the high school and at the college level, right? Even as young as my my niece, I'm going to digress here. My niece is in this 
new, she's three and a half and she's on this current architecture kick, not by me, right? As kind of this ad hoc exploratory thing that she was introduced with at school. And now she's like obsessed with architecture, right? So it's, you know, just kind of providing that avenue to explore that and look into it and just reach out on, on resources and finding kind of what your career paths are. There's so many things that architects do. There's so many different types of architects. You know, you can do libraries, you can do homes, you can do U.S. embassies, right? Um, so I, I would just encourage if it's something that there's even an inkling that somebody may be interested in to, you know, explore that further and not think that it's out of reach. Don't think that you have to be an amazing artist and drawer. You know, that's also a misnomer. You don't need to be a, a Pablo Picasso, you know. But you have to be able to like draw. Like I couldn't be an architect. <laughs> we have computers nowadays though. So, you know, that's the reality of it. Like don't, you know, and if you're not great at math, that's okay. There's computers, right? You know, there's there's ways to assist in that. So don't let that be a deterrent, I guess I would be my words of encouragement. I would put porticos in every design. There you go. You would be a very bad architect. <laughs> no, so let me say, I you'd probably be a great architect in terms of constructing buildings. Your aesthetic would not please most people. But it would be identifiable. <laughs> right. Okay. It's like the like anytime you see a Frank Lloyd Wright building and you're like, oh my God, that's totally right. Right. There would be like a Koshibaxi Carson's building, which is like, is the entire outside covered with porticos? Mm -hmm. That was or it's her just one big portico. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. I texted, actually, I texted Scott and I was like, oh, we're talking to Happy Friendly. And, and then I go, I just found out a portico. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Um, um, okay. So do you, first of all, do you know the book um, Iggy Peck Architect? I do. And I love reading it to students when we get into their classrooms. It's amazing. Uh, I love that entire series of books, but my daughter is um, eight and she's been in love with the entire series of books for a long time. And that is particular. What I love it. I love it. It's set in Chicago, which is amazing. And uh, just, I, I love that. Like he saves the day with architecture at the end. It's awesome. Uh, okay. So the last question that we have for you is not about porticos but it is about um, your femelect. So, you know, being a first generation, I'm sure you have some that's like, you know, translations from your parents and things like that, but any examples of words, phrases, you know, made up terms that you use in your everyday that is just in your like small intimate group and not, not like a commonly used phrase. Any examples for us? Yeah, so I have um, the one that just, because I did think about this, quite a bit. And the one that keeps coming to mind is a saying that we have that my dad kind of started with me and my sister when we were little, um, you know, we'd be going to basketball games or other, you know, concerts that we were playing in and other events. And, you know, it'd be like, okay, dad, okay, like, wish us good luck. And the saying was always, you don't need the luck, you got the skills, you know, it, exactly <laughs> in that, in that tone. Like that. <laughs> exactly. You don't need the luck, you got the skills you know, as little kids, it always stuck with us because it was, you know, funny, cute, but then really like, as we kind of grew older, you know, there's, there's kind of power in that saying, right. It's like, if you're prepared for something and you have the strength and the skill sets for that situation, you know, you've got the confidence to go in. It was a confidence builder, right? Like go in there and crush it. Right. So, um, well now do you and your sister just say like skills, like you just say it and you don't <laughs> even say the whole thing. 
Yes. Or everyone. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like a funny little thing. So, um, awesome. yeah, that one has stuck around, you know, 30 plus years at this point. So it's, it's making its way. I think it's, we're going to start passing it down to our nieces, which is kind of the thing now as they get into, you know, sports and extracurriculars. The stuff that you pick up as a kid, right. And, yeah. and with your siblings, I think sticks around the longest. Oh yeah. Coach already interviewed me about something. Um, and she asked me about Famlect and I was like, I can't, you know, everything I know. <laughs> I mean, if I say something, you're going to be like, oh yeah. I mean, like nothing's going to be interesting or new, maybe to our listeners it will be, but I was like, I'm just looking at you and I was like, what am I supposed to say that you don't know? <laughs> right. And sometimes it's hard to pinpoint that too, right? I I was like, I'm sure if I were to like sit and talk and you guys were to listen to me around, you know, my sister or my family for a day, you'd be like, family, you know, like 10 oh, things. Yeah. Be like, and why I'm do like, you say that? Oh. What does that word mean? <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So in the beginning of the podcast, we've been doing this almost two years. In the beginning, we would just ask people and a lot of people would be like, oh, I don't know because, and a couple people have said like, my family's not that interesting. And it's not that. Every family has their family, every friend group, work group, whatever it is. It's that because it's normalized to use those weird words that you don't consider it family. It's normal vocabulary. Oh, you have been just so Oh, it's joy. been a joy. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for having me. This has been awesome. This has been so fantastic. And I am going to actually, we're going to take you up on meeting you at Riverside yeah, um, of course. Library. And I would love to go to like, let's do like, I am speaking on the road because I want to go to Riverside Library and then LaGrange Library. And I would love to hear how you did things differently to serve those different communities because they're only what, 25 minutes apart but the communities are very, very different mm -hmm. so, and the yeah. news are different. So I'd love to hear. Yeah, that would be really cool. I clearly, as we have figured out in the last hour and a half, know nothing about architecture, but I'm very, I'm like, want to learn everything. Yeah. We are more than happy to talk about it. We'll bring Scott along. We'll bring Wonderful. Our, some other that designers cool. and yeah. Just don't talk about happy. that house on Washington and then. No, not on the record. Scott can come. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so much. Lovely. Pleasure have meeting an awesome you guys. day. Thank Have a great you guys, night. You too. Bye. Good night.